Mackerel Podcast number 121 for May 21st, 2008. Sponsored by MYOB Small Business Accounting and Point-of-Sale Software. Helping you to mind your own business smarter. Welcome to another Mackerel Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. The doldrums are just about done in regard to the kind of splashy Apple events that turn heads and dominate front pages. WWDC is weeks away, and sold out, by the way, and the iPhone 2.0 software, along with, who knows, maybe even a new iPhone, follows shortly after. In our next podcast in two weeks, we'll do the big WWDC ramp-up, but I can't help mention that my excitement over the event is starting to build. Today's podcast focuses on subjects that one might contend are a lot about Apple, but lack a certain mackiness. And by that, I mean that in our first interview, Mac user co-editor Dan Morin and I take some time to commemorate the something around one year anniversary of iTunes Plus, Apple's release of copy protection free tracks on the iTunes store. Dan and I will discuss what this has done for Apple, as well as the current state of DRM in the entertainment world. Later in the podcast, senior editor Rob Griffiths joins me to discuss running Windows on a Mac, how it's done, things you want to consider before trying it, and perhaps most importantly, why you'd want to do it in the first place. It's at this point that I usually offer some news and commentary, but I've been bloviating a lot on Macworld.com lately. I have something to say, for example, about Netflix and Roku's seemingly compelling Netflix player. This is a $100 box that allows you to stream some Netflix content, including movies and TV shows, across the internet to an attached television. 100 bucks, no additional cost for the content on top of your unlimited Netflix subscription. So, it looks pretty cool, though certainly not as feature-rich as the Apple TV. I'll likely get one and give it a whirl. I'll put a link to that piece in the show notes. No, instead of the usual news and commentary, I'm going to offer up a short, though sometimes noisy, interview between Apple's Ron Johnson, who's the Senior Vice President of Retail, your Mac Life's Sean King, and our own Dan Morin on the occasion of the opening of the massive Apple Store in Boston. And now here's Sean and Dan. Ron Johnson, uh, VP of Retail for Apple. This is the first store that you guys have focused on the environmental aspect of it to such a degree. No, I think with all of our stores, we think through the environmental impact of the store. In this store, there are two unique things. Uh, working with the city, we put a green roof on the top, and then we actually collect the rainwater. It runs through the systems below the sewer into the water table of the back bay. And that's a really important issue to Boston is to build back the water table. And so we made those two small contributions to this neighborhood. Now, from inside the store, the roof isn't green. It's, it's a see-through roof. What do you mean by a green roof? Well, if you went up on top of the store, you'd see a natural turf. Really? It's actually grass. And, you know, you kind of want to hang out there. If you could bring out your lawn chair, you'd love to do that. What, do you guys think about the carbon footprint of this store? It seems like with all the glass and the steel, air conditioning is going to be very, very intensive in the store, especially in the summertime. Is that an issue with you guys? No, we've worked, we, you know, we've worked very closely to utilize natural light in a positive way. Okay. As you know, that sun can provide a lot of heat, which yeah. reduces your conditioning requirements in the middle of winter. And we're highly confident that we've built a store here that is going to have a great environmental impact. Yeah. Can I ask you, uh, from a different standpoint, the Boston store you said is the largest of yeah. the retail stores. Is there a particular reason that you decided to do that you know, here in Boston? Yeah, I think the reason has a lot to do with timing. Apple, as you know, has exploded in growth. The Mac is growing three times the rate of the PC industry. And you see that in our stores, the growth of our stores. 
the iPod continues to have momentum. The phone is all new. As we have grown as a company, we have more people coming to our stores. Sure. So when you look at this store opening now in May 2008, we need a bigger store. Boston is also redeveloping. And you see that right here on Boylston Street in front of us. we got Heinz Convention Center out to the right from the front window. The Prudential Office Building. The Mandarin Hotel where a lot of people will tour. The Back Bay Apartments. There's so much growth in Boston combined with growth in Apple that it's time to build another large store. And so it's not that we're in Boston. It's this moment where it's been enabled. A lot of folks don't realize that Apple chooses those moments. You don't choose cities because oh, it's time to go to Boston or right. Minneapolis, whatever. You choose those moments, right? Yeah, well, we, we, you know, we have almost 200 stores in the United States now. This is our first one in downtown Boston. Yeah. Clearly, back in 2001, when we opened our first store, we could have had a very productive store in downtown Boston. But we wanted to find the right location for that. Newbury Street was too small in 2001. It's still too small today. We really liked Boylston Street. We loved this block across from the Peru, near the convention center, near Berkeley School of Music, near BU. So we had to wait for the timing to be right. And that's why we're open today. Was there a reason that you chose to do something that's so Boston-specific as put up that facade in the front of the Green Monster? Yeah, yeah we just thought it was fun. It was great. You know, we enjoyed it. it. And uh, we, know Bo- <laughs> we know Boston, people love their sports. The Red Sox, it's really Red Sox Nation. I live in California. <laughs> I know that. And we thought, you know, putting something out that was referential to something people really cared about was a, a, a way to put a smile on someone's face and say, we're here for you, Boston. And now, that's self-same Dan Morin and I talk iTunes Plus and DRM. I'm joined by Mac user co-editor Dan Morin on the occasion, or almost the occasion, of one year's worth of iTunes Plus, the copy protection-free content sold by the iTunes Store. Thanks very much for joining me, Dan. Thanks for having me, Chris. So, iTunes Plus coming up, anniversary, I believe, what, the end of this and yeah, well, if you if you recall, they promised Steve Jobs said uh, that they would put it sometime in May, which for Apple means the last possible day that they could get it out the gate. <laughs> right. Okay, so prior to a year ago, where were we in terms of copy protection and digital media downloads? We were in what some might call the dark ages, where everything that you could download online, with the exception of those things that you could acquire via more illicit methods, was copy protected by some scheme or other. Apple was using their fair play uh, scheme on pretty much all of their stuff. Microsoft had at least one or two of their own schemes, um, and there were a variety of other places. The, the only exception, I think, may have been at that point uh, eMusic, which had some mp3 downloads but not from most of the major labels right and then at some point steve jobs came out of nowhere really and wrote a long letter to the world at large uh addressing the issue of drm some might say that he saw the light uh but he did sort of come out and all of a sudden decry drm in its many forms saying that you know if apple had its way it would it would make things drm free in a second but that the labels were the ones that were holding it back Right. And uh, and I don't know about – I mean, what was your reaction when you first read that? Well, you know, my reaction was something along the lines of, well, hallelujah, praise be the gods. I mean, he, it's, it was something that, you know, I felt very strongly about, and I had written a couple editorials prior to that about 
how the idea of DRM is really just something that ends up punishing the consumers, the people who buy the music, by keeping them locked into these these archaic schemes and to limiting what they can do with their music in perfectly non-infringing, harmless uses uh, even in terms of the way they, they interact with their music on their own computer. Um, and so for me to hear someone like Steve, someone so prominently and so majorly involved in the digital music effort to come out and say, oh, you know, this is, we don't like this and we would love to do it another way, was just like, you know, it was like a message coming down from on high. So it was it was quite a great relief to hear that. But uh, the, then the question became, well, how are they going to make this happen? Yeah, and, and I have to say that I'm more cynical than you. And when I heard that announcement, I said, oh, let's see. Uh, Apple is uh, – they're pending lawsuits all over Europe about this. And uh, hmm, maybe he's just trying to say, hey, uh, no, it's not our fault. We, we'd love to get rid of this. You have to look over there at those guys because it's not us. Uh, but it turns out that uh, they appear to be sincere because something happened. Steve got together with another company and they had a little uh, meeting. A little powwow. Um, yes, and then the result was, uh, I think, about six weeks or a, a month or two after uh, he wrote that letter, they had a, a press conference with EMI, one of the major labels in London, in which they laid out their vision for a DRM-free future. Um, and saying that tracks would be available, DRM-free tracks from EMI would be available in the iTunes store uh, by the end of May, which they ended up being. And Steve Jobs made a somewhat grandiose prediction that over half of iTunes' catalog would be available DRM-free by the end of that year, 2007. So how'd that work out? That didn't work out so well for Steve. (laughs) I mean, and one of the few times, you know, you've got to admit, he usually, he usually, when he says something, he, he, you know, full throttle makes that happen. But in this case, things were not entirely under his control. So what we found is that while EMI was on board, most of the other major labels would not concur. And so it wasn't until October of last year that they got anybody else to sign up, at which point they, they signed up a bunch of the uh, smaller indie labels mm-hmm. and touted that they would be adding 2 million new DRM-free tracks um, that was just a little bit shy of that half figure that they had uh, predicted earlier in the year. So you'll notice they never really brought that up again. <laughs> yeah, that didn't really happen. And as I recall, yeah, there was that first bit with the MI. It was all great, and we all looked at it and said, "Oh, gee, uh, oh, buck twenty nine a track." Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sure these all sound a lot better than they did when they were in their protected form. And uh, and they stayed that way for a long time. And uh, uh, but then something else happened. More interestingly, yes. which was that Amazon came along and suddenly said, "Oh, well, we're going to open our own MP3 store with nothing but DRM-free downloads." Um, how do you like them apples? Yeah. And, and what happened? And well, what happened was that Apple had to end up sort of making concessions. So in that same point where they added a bunch of the indie labels, they dropped the price. So no longer did you have to pay that thirty cent premium to buy a DRM free version of the track, but it was the ninety nine cent price point, like all the other music. Um, and they also, you know, they had to boost their catalog a little bit with the addition of those indies. But they still lacked all the other major labels, which. I think Amazon started with two of the major labels and then by the beginning of this year acquired the other two. So uh, by this point, Amazon has DRM-free tracks from all of the major labels. Uh, and Apple still sits with EMI and the Indies. Yes, so why is that? Well, there's a lot of speculation as to the case, but the, the most sort of 
logical reasoning, some have said, is that the, the industry has never been thrilled with, uh, the music industry, that is, has never been thrilled with how much of a stranglehold Apple has on the digital music and digital media industry. So uh, this is sort of, many think, the way, the, the, the record label's way of setting up a competitor, someone to fight against iTunes and to sort of even the playing field and take away some of Apple's dominating power in that arena. Because we're talking about an area where Apple controls some, say, 70 or 80% of the digital download market. They're now the biggest retailer in the United States, and they have a lot of clout. And they were in a position to continually turn down the record labels for demands that they were making, like variable pricing on on music tracks. Mm -hmm. So this is the attempt for the record labels to sort of take the power back, get themselves a bargaining chip and saying, well, you know, we know consumers want DRM-free music, so... Uh, we're going to give it to this other source over here and see if that sort of levels the playing field a bit. Well, I think it has to an extent, but only sort of among the geekier of us. I mean, I like Amazon MP3 a lot, and I will shop there um, often before I will shop at the iTunes store because their prices are better a lot of times. But I just don't, you know, after that sort of week or two when Amazon first released this service, I didn't hear a lot about it. And I still don't hear people saying, yes, I got this music from Amazon. Everybody still talks about iTunes. It's pretty limited. I have a few people who I know who are just sort of on principle refuse to buy DRM music. Um, but other than that, you're right. I mean, this hasn't made much of a dent for Apple in the sense that they still control the overwhelming share of the digital download market. And it doesn't really matter to them if they go DRM free or not, it's 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 an extra check in their column if they do. It, it looks good on their resume, if you will. Mm -hmm. But since the major the major point of why DRM became a contention in the first place is that um, if you wanted to buy music from an alternative source and use it on your iPod, that was rather difficult. But if you were selling music in the MP3 format, Amazon and now others like Napster, which just today released its own DRM free. Uh, music service can now say that their services work with with the iPod, which is ex a huge deal for them because it's obviously the most popular music player in existence. Right. So being able to tout that compatibility is really good for those alternative services. But Apple's had that all along. I mean, all their stuff has always worked with the iPod. And as long as that's the case, they're going to control a big a big portion of the download market. Right. Well, Apple dominates our world. So speaking of competition... While all this has been going on, what's happening elsewhere in the tech world in terms of digital rights management? Well, there are some other things going on, and a lot of things in the not in the less good category, things that harken back to those dark ages. Mm -hmm. uh, video is becoming a big question as well. Um, and one of the things that came up recently this week was a uh, Microsoft uh, Media Center, uh, the people who use Media Center software on their Windows machines to record TV shows found that they were unable to record uh, certain TV shows on NBC because uh, NBC had used what's called the broadcast flag, which is basically a little bit, a little switch they can flick to say, we won't want anybody to, re to record this content. And while people like Microsoft aren't necessarily obliged to recognize that, I mean, legally speaking, they did in this case and ended up with a very a number of unhappy people who didn't get to watch their American gladiators. Mm -hmm. But uh, Microsoft as well has had other issues in the past. They, for example, have shuttered now their MSN music service uh, or are doing that shortly. And one of the downsides of that sort of highlights why DRM is such a problem. Because what they've said is that as of past uh, the end of August this year, 
uh, they will no longer be serving up the sort of keys that people who use this subscription service needed in order to play their music because they have one of those deals where you know you sign up for a service, you pay a monthly fee, and you can listen to all the music you want. Uh, but now that they've sort of shut that service down, uh, the problem is they're not going to keep running all the infrastructure forever. So what they've said is, well, you're fine as long as you continue to use the computers that you have authorized. So as long as you use those computers for the rest of your life, you can hear all the music that you've gotten from them. Fine. No problem. Great. Of course, if you go out and buy a new computer, you're kind of out of luck. Uh, but doesn't Microsoft have this Zune thing going on? Couldn't they just shuttle all those customers over there and say, here, use this instead? You'd think so, but for some reason, they've had this dual-pronged approach for quite some time, where when the Zune came out, it used its own entirely different DRM scheme. So for a while, Microsoft had been working with a bunch of partners, people like MTV and uh, a number of hardware purveyors like Creative and people like that, to set up what they called a Plays for Sure DRM service. Um, yes, somewhat ironically titled. <laughs> I prefer to think of it as plays for maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and so then they came out with a Zune, and to everybody's surprise, the Zune used an entirely different copy protection scheme that was incompatible, <sighs> which was somewhat puzzling, unless, you know, you're like us and you followed Microsoft long enough to know that this was pretty much standard operating procedure. Yeah, okay, so speaking of the music and, and audio industries, it seems to me that they're they're following kind of different tra- trajectories now that the music business really pushed hard on DRM. They were going out and they were suing 12 year olds and their families for uh, stealing music. And now they seem to be kind of putting the brakes on that and letting up on the whole DRM thing. Whereas the video industry is hitting this stuff really hard. Now is that simply because the music industry is more seasoned? They failed at DRM and are sort of saying, okay, forget it. Well, I mean, certainly the video industry is becoming more and more prominent nowadays now that we have, you know, iTunes sells movies and TV shows. Um, we've got a bunch of other online services where you can stream your, your TV shows for free, all these different options. And so the video industry is kind of looking to, well, this is what happened to the music industry um, when they tried to go down this route. And so I think what you're seeing is less of these sort of legal actions with the, with the video industry and more of the, the the sort of behind closed doors business deals with other companies to say, we want to ensure that we have these protections and they're in a unique position. Even Steve jobs, who was asked about this uh, when he first gave that press conference with EMI, uh, whether or not they would go DRM free for video. He said specifically video is different from music because right now, for example, you can't go out and buy video even on a physical format that doesn't have some sort of DRM. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you buy a DVD, uh, it's got uh, the CSS uh, encryption scheme on it. So you can't rip that DVD to your computer without some sort of gray area law in terms of you know whether it's for personal use, etc. So unlike CDs, which have traditionally always been available with no DRM whatsoever, uh, there's not quite as much of an argument in the case of video because they've been using these protection schemes for quite some time, though people have been circumventing them. All right, so let's look into the crystal ball, and uh, what do you see the future as for copy-protected media? Well, there's, this is difficult, because for me, of course, I have the future I would love to see, which is that things are freely available with no DRM protection, and you know you can watch your videos on whatever device you want, whenever you want, etc. On the other hand, I kind of have that, you know, the reality part of me, let's call it, where I know that these, these businesses spend... Uh, 
immense amounts of money creating this content and, of course, are extremely interested in keeping that protected and keeping their their methods of distribution protected so that they can continue to make the same profit they've always made. Um, and so I think they're going to continue pushing hard for DRM. And for the, for the immediate future, we're going to be faced with a world where, you know, our video content, at least, is DRM protected. Our music content, less and less so. Mm-hmm. I think it will depend on how well Amazon and Napster do with these DRM free sales that they've been doing and whether or not Apple moves into that arena as well. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of these uh, entertainment media content producing companies are realizing that their position is not as assured as it once was with the exponential rise of the internet and things like video sharing and music sharing and all the social networking sites. It's becoming harder and harder for them to keep a lid on not only their content, but competing with the content that's being created for free on the internet. And that this middleman role of the people, uh, the media companies who are in between the people creating the content and the people consuming the content is increasingly coming under threat. And while I don't think it's going away in the immediate future, I think down the road they're certainly going to have to look at how to adapt in this new like, technologically pervasive society. And somehow make money while doing it. Yes, well, it's either that or go out of business if they don't make money. <laughs> yeah, well, I think and, – and people look at the model and say, okay, um, advertising. And, and really, is that what it all finally comes down to is that you're just selling Coke for somebody? I mean that's the question. It's it's something that I think the web producers have dealt a lot with in the past several years is trying to figure out just how effective advertising is. There are people, you know, for whom this is an entire platform like Google. You know, that's where their bread and butter comes from is advertising and it's worked very very well for them. But if you look at all the other banner ads flashing around out there and all the software that's cropped up to deal with those, then advertising is said that well maybe it's not effective in quite the same way that it used to be. So Will that will that actually have a return, like on an investment for the people buying all those ads? Yeah, and that's the big question because I think that's what people are hoping will be the one way out of this. If if music becomes free and video becomes uh, easy to move around without paying for it, advertising is kind of it. Yeah, well, other, otherwise we end up in a giant communist society where everything is freely available to everybody for. I don't know. <laughs> That's a different political road. And that worked out really well. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that great Soviet music of the, uh, of the 70s, and so I still enjoy it. I do, too. I rock out with that routinely. Um, so Dan's working on an article that explores the past, present, and future of digital rights management that should appear on Macworld.com shortly. In the meantime, check out Dan's prodigious body work. The guy just never stops working. On uh, MacUser.com, iPhone Central, and of course elsewhere on Macworld.com. Thanks very much for your keen insights, Dan. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. Before Rob Griffiths and I explore Windows on your Mac, a word from our sponsor, MYOB. Are you a small business owner looking for an easy-to-set-up point-of-sale solution? Look no further. New from MYOB, the company who brings you award-winning Account Edge accounting software is Checkout, a point-of-sale system only for the Mac. Created with the realities of retail in mind, Checkout provides an easy-to-learn, efficient, and reliable way to make sales and manage your store. Get up and running in 15 minutes and start spending more time with your customers. Learn more at www.myob-us.com. Up now, 
Rob Griffiths on Windows and the Mac. I'm Skyped in with Rob Griffiths, a guy who appears often enough that he's earned his Macworld Podcast frequent flyer pin. And this is a distinct honor, and so Rob is is very pleased to have that. This time around, we're here to discuss Rob's recent articles on the various ways of running Windows on a Mac. Thank you very much for joining me, Rob. And how's that pin look? It's beautiful, Chris. I've never seen a pin quite so big. (laughs) Yeah, it's huge. It covers my entire lapel. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, because of all your contributions, we wanted to make sure that you had the largest pin uh, that we could afford. And uh, <laughs> and that's what you got. Unfortunately, it's made out of pig iron. So uh, enough silliness aside, we'll go to a different brand of silliness. And that silliness is running Windows on your Mac. So before we get to the obvious, why the hell would you want to do this question? Let's start with the basics. To successfully run Windows on your Mac, what do you need? Uh, the first thing you uh, to, to do it well, you really need an Intel Mac. I mean, if you have a PowerPC Mac, there are some old non-supported solutions that sort of half-heartedly work. But if you have an Intel-powered Mac, you can get some very nice solutions that actually do work. So you'll need a newer machine. But uh, from what we've been reading, apparently there are quite a few of those in circulation now. So that shouldn't be a big holdup. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you need some sort of software that will actually let you run either Windows or Windows applications on your Intel Mac. And the two market leaders is in the full uh, – I don't want – emulation isn't really the right word. It's virtualization because you aren't emulating thing. You're actually running it. Uh, the, two, the two real big programs in the virtualization market are Parallels Desktop for Mac and VMware Fusion. And then there's sort of a third entry, which is Crossover. And Crossover isn't actually running the entire operating system, but it actually lets you run Windows applications without actually having Windows installed, which is a bit of a trick. Right. And we're talking about virtualization. So Boot Camp does not fit in here because... Uh, boot camp, you're actually turning your Mac into a, an actual Windows PC. So you aren't virtualizing anything and you are no longer running Mac OS X. You're running some version of Windows XP or Vista. Right. Now, speaking of those versions of Windows, what version of Windows should people install on their Mac? Um, the cheapest and least resource-intensive version that will support the software they wish to run. Um, you know, you can install anything up to Vista, and I have had Vista installed. I've had XP installed. My favorite is actually still Windows 2000, although there are some programs now that won't run in Windows 2000. So, um, you know, you basically want to buy and install just what you need to make your program function. The the less overhead the operating system has, the better your programs are going to run inside their virtual containers. Right. Now, how much difference does it make in the kind of Mac that you're using if you want to use something like Vista? Uh, it'll make quite a bit of difference as, you know, obviously as RAM gets larger and uh, processor speed increases, you will notice that your virtual machine is behaving better. But with that said, I installed Vista. I have an original Core Duo, uh, no, not even a Core 2 Duo, a Core Duo Mini a 1.66 gigahertz machine, and it ran Vista with what I would deem acceptable speed. I mean, it clearly was not as snappy in the user interface stuff as like Windows 2000 is on that same machine, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like where you would click something and go, oh, it's done. You know, there'd be a little bit of lag and dragging Windows was around wasn't necessarily the smoothest thing, but it ran just fine. Yeah. Well, I found in doing this some of the stuff myself that um – Multimedia applications are a problem under Vista, yes. uh, particularly sound apps. I mean, even something as simple as iTunes that should play seamlessly, I tend to get a lot of and uh, and like that. Yeah, yeah. Sound and video definitely are two things that will. Um, and I, and I don't even. It's not necessarily stretching the CPU. I think it's more sort of a scheduling issue of 
you know, that this that seems like the programs aren't getting the right kind of priority from the operating system inside mm-hmm. the virtual window. Because if you watch like a CPU monitor, it's not like they're pegged that's causing the skipping. So I'm not sure what's going on there. But for the typical app office applications, which was really sort of the focus of what we were looking at, um, you know, most of those things are are screens of text and figures and some images, but not really full media sound applications. Right. Now, before we get to the uh, specific virtualization programs, is there a certain class of applications that you should just not run under virtualization and just simply say, okay, if I want to do this, I've got to go to boot camp? Well, uh, clearly, you know, the top of that list would be any of the newest 3D games or even of something like a 3D intensive design and development program. If you want the most power out of the machine, uh, you're going to want to run it via boot camp. The uh, graphic support is, I mean, everything's better because you're running actual honest-to-gosh full-blown Windows with all of its drivers and all the right graphic card support so you can get the most out of your machine and you'll get the most speed and you're not trying to run two operating systems at the same time. So, you know, the high-end gaming, the anything that's sort of intensive 3D, uh, probably, and I haven't actually, I don't own anything on the Windows side that does this, but I would imagine something like a DVD movie maker application on the Windows side would probably work best uh, one run natively. Right. Okay, so without specifically asking which you prefer, can you kind of outline <laughs> the differences between VMware Fusion and Parallels Desktop for the Mac? Well, uh, it's it's kind of they, they you use them so often, and I go back and forth between them so much. They really start to blur together in my mind. But I think it comes down to if I were to try to sum it up, Parallels Desktop really goes out of its way to fully integrate Windows and. OS 10. So there are things you can do like in OS 10, you can have your Windows program appear in the contextual menu. So you can open documents in OS 10 with a Windows application and vice versa. You can put your Mac applications into the Windows menu so you can start Mac apps from the Windows environment. So in that sense, it's sort of uh, trying to give you this seamless uh, sense that, yeah, there's another operating system running here, but we don't really care. You know, whatever tool you need to use to get the job done, we're going to make it available to you in either environment. And it has a bunch of stuff like that. The sharing is more defined and developed in terms of how well you can integrate the uh, the two sides. So I'd say Parallels is really has done a really good job at making the the two environments integrate incredibly well. They have a mode called Coherence, which essentially gets rid of the Windows desktop and just runs Windows applications in Windows on OS X, if mm-hmm. that's not confusing. Um, and uh, Fusion has a similar thing they call Unity, but between the two, Coherence is a little better developed and seems to work just a little better. Uh, with that said, Fusion is currently in a beta cycle uh, for their next sort of major update, and they've made some improvements in their Unity mode to try to make it more competitive with Coherence. Uh, on the, the Fusion side, one of their sort of real competitive advantages is that they are the standard on the PC side of the world when it comes to virtualization. So they have a huge development team. They have a huge number of products across both Linux and Windows and now Mac. And one thing they offer is this huge collection of what they call virtual uh, appliances, mm-hmm. which which are pre-built uh, virtual machines. So you download one of these things, you click a couple buttons, and you're running an operating system. And for somebody like if you'd ever wanted to experiment with Linux and you were intimidated by the process of installing and testing and getting creating users and all that stuff, you can download a pre-built Linux virtual appliance, uh, click a couple buttons, and you'll be logged in and running a full-blown Linux installation, and you can see how you like it and test it out and do whatever it is you'd like to do with it. 
you can also do that with parallels. It's just that when you look at the libraries right now, at least um, Fusion uh, VMware in general's library is massive. I think they have over four hundred and some odd uh, appliances out there you can download. Yeah, I like that. I actually ran the BOS on uh, on Fusion just to sort of yeah. go back to the old days. Ah, <laughs> oh, this had so much potential, and uh, yes, what happened? Or look what didn't happen. Okay, so. How difficult is this really to, you know, for somebody who's never run Windows before and they've got their Mac there and they go, oh, how am I going to get Windows on this thing? Is it is it a pretty f- straightforward process getting this on to your Mac? Yeah, both both companies have actually done a great job. Uh, you know, the installation they both use, you, you run an installer, it goes through, and uh, I, I you know, honestly, I can't remember. I think one or the other or both may require a restart. I'm not positive after you do the install, but then once the program's installed, you essentially run it. And if you want to install Windows, you, you walk through a series of things. This is what operating system do you want to install. Oh, I want to install Windows XP. And then basically, you put your Windows XP CD in the drive, and both programs have actually, interestingly, made it easier to install Windows than it is to install Windows on a Windows machine because they have um, assistants that ask you all the questions that you need to answer to do a Windows installation. They ask you up front, and then they provide those answers as the installer runs. So you can basically say go, and it finishes, as opposed to if you've ever installed Windows yourself, it seems to always want to come up and ask you something over, you know, there, you, you'll go away, get a cup of coffee, and you'll come back, and it'll be sitting there on the screen asking you a question that you needed to answer. It's like, oh, shoot, so it's not done. Um, so both programs actually make that process simpler than it is on a real Windows machine. So insert your Windows thing, uh, let it run through the installer, and when it gets done, you've got a virtual machine ready to run. You know, Probably the hardest part about it is deciding how big you want to make the hard drive mm-hmm. for the virtual machine. Yeah, and Vista requires a fair amount of space, as I recall. Yeah, I think they, they require 15 gigabytes and they recommend 40 um which uh, seems a uh, uh, huge to me <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah now given that that the os particularly for vista takes up a fair amount of space what do you do about file management i mean if you've got a, a, a not really a partition but this virtual sort of machine here do you really want to store everything with inside that machine or do you want to work out a scheme where you can store it on your Mac's uh, hard drives, you know, it's sort of in the Mac area of it or, or what do you choose? Yeah. And that sort of really depends on usage and your preferences. What I, what I have done is um, if I have, uh, you know, like there are some games now that will actually run inside virtualization programs, um, not the latest and greatest, but like something like Prey actually you can run inside Parallels desktop. So anything I'm installing that is like a Windows specific application, obviously I install within Windows and I let its data files for it, this is non-work related stuff, exist on the Windows uh, virtual machine. I figure if it goes away, there's no great loss and I can create it again. Um, But I tend to keep data files uh, on a Mac folder that I then share back and Mm -hmm. use inside the virtualization program. I just find it easier to manage that way. I either get backed up by Time Machine because they don't live within the virtual machine. They live on my Mac hard drive. So they're part of my normal backup routine. I can see them. I can open them with the Mac version of various programs, like if it was a Photoshop file or an Office file. Uh, I can open it natively if I don't need to go into Windows to do something. So to me, it seems to offer the most flexibility. And I don't necessarily need to worry about filling up my virtual machine with a bunch of data files. Right. Now, when people hear about Windows files touching their Mac, uh, a lot of people, the first thing they think is, "Uh uh-oh, viruses and adware and spyware. How much of a danger is this? I mean, certainly this is just like a real PC, so you're vulnerable to this on the PC side. But what about your Mac? Is there any danger of things crossing over the border and suddenly mucking up your Mac? I haven't heard of anything actually happening. Um, Now, if you think about it logically, 
if there were a piece of malware, let's say, and it had the ability to erase all of the contents of mounted um, files and folders, and you had shared a folder from your Mac side into the Windows side, mm-hmm. and you were hit with this piece of malware, I imagine it would be able to erase all of the files in that folder because to Windows, you have full rights to do whatever you want inside that folder. So I could certainly see it deleting a bunch of files if you were to be infected by a piece of uncontrolled malware that did this mass deletion stuff. Like I said, I haven't heard of any of that stuff actually in the wild. I haven't heard of anybody losing files because of a piece of malware that, that crept in on the Windows side. But you definitely want to run uh, spyware and malware protection on your Windows partitions. I was I was actually infected about a year ago, I think under XP, when I was just, I was actually looking for, I was going to write an article about comparing iPhoto to some of the Windows competitors. So I started looking for photo management software in the Windows world. And just in the span of browsing probably, I don't know, a couple dozen websites uh, one of them contained a not very nice piece of software, and it infected my machine. So, you know, the next time when Windows Guardian or whatever it was came up, it said, "Hey, you're up. You've got a problem here." So, kind of like, oh, that was an eye opener. You know, yeah. it's something that hasn't happened to me on the Mac side of just browsing websites. I I don't even know that I downloaded anything. It was just literally opening some websites. So, you know, I think there certainly are some fears that if there are viruses that go around and delete things, it's possible that they would be able to delete files on folders that your Windows partition has the rights to read and write, because if Windows can read and write them, there's no reason it couldn't erase them. Um, That said, it's not possible for somebody to essentially write a Windows virus, which would then infect the Mac side of your machine and do similar, you know, let's say it was, I don't know, a, uh, a mass emailing bot program that got installed and took advantage of all the hooks that Windows has to tie the address book to the mail program, um, that code is not going to be obviously able to run in the native Mac side of your operating environment. So you don't necessarily worry about the virus itself propagating over to the Mac side. Right. Okay. So now the big question, why the hell would you want to do this? <laughs> well, I think for a lot of switchers, um, it eases the, uh, the route into life on the Mac. You know, if we didn't have programs such as parallels and uh, fusion, it would be sort of a cold turkey cut to, to make a move from Windows to Mac. As it is now, though, you can basically, for the cost of your Mac, plus I think 80 bucks for either program, and uh, you can then migrate over to Mac, launch a virtualization program when you need to run one of those Windows apps, and then over time what you'll find is either that you're not doing that very often, that there's a Mac equivalent that you do want to buy, or maybe you'll just keep running the virtualization software. So that's certainly one scenario. And, you know, it's very hard to put numbers on that, but I can't, I, I certainly think having these programs available has helped those that are willing or looking to switch to the Mac. Uh, the other big reason is that you have a compelling need for some program that only exists on the Windows platform and that either has a terrible Mac counterpart or has no Mac counterpart. And I think one that's probably a closer to your heart than mine. You do a lot more with video than I do, but I, Netflix, I understand, has a streaming client that you can only use on Windows right. and not on Mac. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And they so, promised a Mac version, but you know who knows? Uh, <laughs> um, so something like that. Uh, in, my, in my case, um, Office 2007, as ugly and terrible as its interface is, um, actually has some really nice features in the programs that you won't find in the Mac version, even the Mac Office 2008 version of those programs. So if you're in a situation where you want all of the features that Office has, well, the way to get that is to run the full-blown Windows Office 2007 inside a virtualization machine, and it runs quite well. Uh, can't, can't solve the fact that they've replaced all the menus with this round blob in the corner of the screen, but it really does well, run well. You know, I thought that was interesting because I, I saw that article as it went up, and 
I think a lot of people think, well, I've got Office 2008, so really what do I need to run something like 2007 for? And I thought you made a very compelling case that 2007 on Windows has some features that a lot of Mac users could use and may need because of uh, the kind of business they do. Yeah, and like one of the biggies, obviously, is access. I mean, in my life before Macworld, I worked in a company where access was what we used to create the websites for our clients. I mean, it was it was used everywhere. And uh, if you didn't have a PC, you certainly couldn't work on access at that time because there were no Intel Macs, or at least you couldn't work well on access. So, um, you know, if you buy Office 2007 and you buy one of the bundles that has access in it, now you can run it at really good speeds inside your virtual machine and still have the benefits of running the Mac OS as your main OS. Uh, similarly, if you um, Office relies on macros, either in Excel or Word, to ease tasks or standardize forms or, you know, a lot of budget templates are done with macros. Right now, uh, in Office 2008, you're out of luck because those won't work at all, although we have heard now that Microsoft is bringing back macro support a few years from now. But if you can't, <laughs> if you can't wait that long, uh, you can run Office 2007, which has full macro support. And again, it's full. It's, it's Office 2007. So if you get a spreadsheet from a Windows user, you will be able to open it in the exact same program they used to create it, so you won't have any compatibility issues. Right. So in all this time of doing this, is there ever a point where you stop thinking about which operating system you're working with so that this sort of becomes transparent and you're just working in an app? Yeah, uh, especially if you use coherence mode or unity mode, it really, you know, once once a program is up and running and you're not interacting with the operating system, it, you know, Word is Word and a 3D design program is a 3D design program and they just look a little bit different. And the virtualization programs work so well that it, you don't really get this feeling like, oh, yeah, this is my virtualization machine. I need to wait and mm-hmm. wait and wait. So it really can become seamless if you like. And it's, it's interesting as I've talked to users, there's sort of a, um, I don't know what the ratio is, but there's a definite black and white line between those that prefer unity and coherence mode to those that prefer the, the opposite extreme, which is the uh, full screen mode, where basically your entire display now looks like a Windows box. And uh, I kind of vacillate between the two, actually. Sometimes I want just the one window for the program I'm working in, and other times what I actually like to do is I use spaces in 10.5 to set up a space, which is my Windows space. And in that space, I run either Fusion or Parallels in full screen mode so that when I slide over to there, it's like, okay, now I'm in Windows and I know what I'm doing. And when I'm done, I can just hide it again by sliding it out of the way. Right. Well, I have to say that I found the series really interesting and quite informative. It appears, again, under the title Best of Both Worlds, in printed form in the June 2008 issue of Macworld. And you'll find elements of it published this week on Macworld.com. Nice job, Rob, and thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Chris. That wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by MYOB, small business accounting and point-of-sale software, helping you to mind your own business smarter. I'd like to thank Sean King, Dan Morin, Ron Johnson, Rob Griffiths, and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.